words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Acts, and we'll be looking at Acts 15, most of the chapter. Uh, we'll, we'll finish at verse 35. So Acts 15, verses 1 through 35. But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you, do, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So... When they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they'd read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. 
And after they'd spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Father, we again, we want to seek your assistance as your word is preached, that, that you, you would be present among us. Lord, we know you're everywhere, you're omnipresent, but in a, in a special way, that you would strengthen our hearts through your words, that you would speak to us, that you would cause your word to come alive, to solidify our convictions, to give clarity to the issues of our life that we're facing each day. Lord, I don't know what various challenges discouragements my brothers and sisters are feeling. Lord, I don't even know if who's in here is truly a believer and who's who's hardened or who is deceived in the thinking they are. Lord, only you know that. And so I pray that you'd use your word to bring clarity, that none of us would be spiritually deceived. But we would have uh, eyes to see ourselves and one another uh, through your eyes. Lord, that we would, we would rightly understand your word and how we should live according to it. And so I pray that you'd work in power through your powerful word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to begin by just a simple but important doctrine or question on doctrine. How do you know... If a doctrine is truly biblical or if it's a doctrine of demons. How do you know if it's being derived from rightly dividing the word of truth or if it's just the figment of some zealous person's imagination that fits more easily with human sentiment? We might say, okay, well, that's easy. What's the Bible say? That's a good answer. But the problem is that almost every teacher of the Word of God, maybe even all, maybe everyone, is fully convinced that they're right. And yet we still have cults and false religions. I mean, Jews, Catholics, Muslims, Mormons... Jehovah's Witnesses would all claim that they're rightly interpreting the Bible, and they're convinced of it. And so, if the Bible is sufficient, why is it that there is so much false doctrine that's propagated and embraced? Well, of course, the problem is not in the Scripture, because the Scripture is God's Word. The problem is that we ourselves can be easily deceived. And we can easily deceive ourselves and, without knowing it, twist what the Bible's saying to fit with what we want it to say and actually distort its very meaning. And the evidence of this is actually seen in the passage before us where some men who zealously wanted to honor God went out of their way to try and correct the gospel, and in fact ended up preaching a false gospel. But they did it with well-meaning hearts. My point is, a person can think that they're doing a really good thing, that they're teaching truth, and be absolutely deceived. In fact, preach a false gospel and undermine the faith of genuine believers. Well, the passage before us can really be divided into three sections. It first begins with this conflict in response to these false teachers. And because of this conflict, the church in Antioch decides to send some leaders to, the, to Jerusalem, where these false teachers came from, to gain unity on this issue in what comes to be known as the Council of Jerusalem. That's in verses 6 through 21. And then based upon their discussion the leaders of the church come to a unified decision on what the gospel actually teaches, namely that we're saved by faith alone and grace alone. And then they announce that by sending back some men to the church of Antioch to let that decision be known. 
Let's look at the uh, beginning with the conflict that emerges in verses 1 through 5. Uh, in fact, verse 1 immediately informs us of the doctrine that's in question. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were teaching, they were trying to correct some Gentiles' understanding of the gospel, but in effect they were teaching a false gospel. So since these men were from the church in Judea, the church in Antioch decides that they need to send the, these leaders to go discuss this issue with this church in Jerusalem. Um, not because the church of Antioch was subordinate to the church in Jerusalem. They just want to make sure they're teaching the same thing, that there's unity, that there's not some division over something so critical as the gospel. So as the delegation traveled to Jerusalem, it says they went through Phoenicia and, and Samaria, and every church they went to, they shared what God had done amongst the Gentiles, relating the stories of the first missionary journey. And, and when the people hear this, particularly the Jewish Christians, that's, most of them would have been Jewish, they rejoiced that so many of the Gentiles had come to saving faith in Christ. But when they get to Jerusalem, the only group that isn't said to be rejoicing is this small sect of the Pharisees. And like the older brother in the prodigal son parable, they don't rejoice. But instead they assert that Gentiles cannot be saved unless they first get circumcised. In other words, unless they first become Jewish. And so in verse 6, the apostles and elders, they gather together to discuss the matter. And that brings us to the, the main point, which is this council, as they discuss this issue of how one can get saved. Do, does a person need to follow the law of Moses first in order to be saved? Do they first need to get circumcised to be saved? Or are they saved simply by trusting in Christ alone? And that's the issue. Now, we only get the, the summary or the highlights from Luke. Not everything is recorded. Um, and really, Luke highlights, first of all, three main arguments. Those that are given by Peter. Then, uh, Paul and Barnabas discuss what happened amongst them. And then, lastly, he tells us what James had to say. Let's look first at Peter in verse 6 through 11. Peter simply reminds the congregation in Jerusalem of his previous experience among the Gentiles uh, that he had in Acts 10, you might recall. And in fact, you might recall what he said in Acts 11. If you just flip back there, you know, chapter 11, verse 17, he says this, kind of is summarizing his experience among the Gentile. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, notice, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Like they already had recognized this doctrine. They'd already agreed to it. Like they're not saying, oh, so they have to be Jews and then they can be saved. They need to get circumcised and they can be saved. No, they recognized unclean Gentiles who have never done any obedience to the law of God, were saved immediately just by believing God's word about Christ's death on the cross being sufficient for sins to be forgiven. They, and, and immediately and believe they received the Holy Spirit. Peter says, I've already related this to you. We've, we shouldn't have to go over this again, is the essence of his counsel. Now again, he did this without... God gave them the Holy Spirit without any of them obeying any of the commandments of the Old Testament. It says, God had cleansed their hearts by faith in verse 9. And that's, that's important to recognize. Because he's saying, they clearly were given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, there was no way the Holy Spirit could indwell an unclean Gentile unless their hearts were already cleansed. Right? If, if, if God himself could not indwell the temple or the tabernacle, unless it had been thoroughly cleansed with the shedding of blood, how in the world could God himself, the Holy Spirit, indwell an unclean Gentile unless they had first had their hearts cleansed through faith? And his point is, 
there is a miracle that has taken place through faith. They've been so purified from their sin that God himself can actually indwell them in the same way that he dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And if he was able to cleanse their hearts simply by faith, why would we suggest that they have to go back and follow the law? Paul describes his spiritual cleansing in Titus 3. It's an important passage. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. Paul reminds Titus of what unbelievers are like in their sin and then the power of this cleansing. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, his point here in Titus is we were as dirty as dirty can get, and yet simply by believing, we were immediately cleansed, immediately forgiven for all of our sins. And so perfectly cleansed that God the Holy Spirit would permanently indwell them. That's the power of the blood of Christ. So when a permanent person is saved, they're not only permanently declared not guilty. That's what we call justification, the doctrine of justification. God no, no longer considers us unrighteous because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us and he declares us righteous just as Christ was righteous. Our righteousness is Christ's righteousness, just as he took his, our unrighteousness and suffered for it on the cross. So we're not only permanently declared righteous and not guilty, we're not only justified, but our souls are also completely cleansed from sin, from the stain of sin. And if you're a sinner in this room, that is some of the most precious good news, good words you could ever hear. That God the Holy Spirit can permanently indwell us. And we know it doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. That's not, it's, it's not denying that reality. But it's, it's highlighting the power of the blood of Christ to cleanse. Nothing, no sin can overcome the power of the blood of Christ. That cleansing cannot be reversed. So imagine a person being offered a job by an, the owner of a company. They, they receive a hiring bonus, they get a uniform, uh, they get the keys to the building, they even get a company car to drive around. They start working, and then after a while, uh, one of their managers recognizes, wait a second, but you didn't go through the normal hiring process. You never filled out an application. You never went through five interviews to make sure you were vetted for this job. You're going to have to go back and do the whole process all over again. We're just like, but I already work here. I've already started receiving a paycheck. The boss himself, the owner of the company, offered me this job. Why would I have to do that? Well, it's similar to what's going on here. They're already in. The Gentiles are already in. The proof that God has indwelt them through the power of the Holy Spirit is evident. Everybody's recognized it. And then some other people are saying, well, that's just, I didn't have to do that, so you shouldn't have to do that. See, Peter recognizes that requiring circumcision implies even more than just requiring extra work to be done. This is an important issue. Look at verse 10. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we will able to bear? He's saying, guys, none of us were able to follow the law of Moses. None of us were. Perfectly. Why are you expecting them to? In fact, he equates asking the Gentiles to be circumcised as putting God to the test. So what's the logic? It's if God has already proven the cleansing power of genuine faith, to demand that more is necessary is actually to question the power of God to cleanse. It's actually suggesting that, no, I don't think God actually could truly purify a person. They have to actually get circumcised first. It's putting God to the test. It's, it's doubting the reality of the power of the gospel. 
So Peter then asserts, not only are Gentiles saved by grace apart from the law, but he actually says, Jews, we Jews are saved in the same manner. None of us got saved because we were following law perfectly. We got saved the same way. We heard of the gospel of Christ that anyone who trusts in his sacrifice for our sins can be saved and be reconciled to God. Anyone. And if we're saved in the same manner, why are you trying to put upon them a yoke that we ourselves couldn't bear and by which we weren't saved by? Verse 11. We believe that we, notice, we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. Jews are saved by grace. Gentiles are saved by grace. So the law shouldn't have anything to do with salvation. That's his point. And this doctrine of salvation by grace alone is taught in every epistle. All the letters of the New Testament, throughout the New Testament it's taught. It's particularly argued very succinctly in the book of Galatians and very thoroughly also in the book of Romans. Look with me in the book of Romans. Romans 3.23. These are, these are passages that we should have sealed upon our mind because this is where false teachers are particularly going to try to get us to doubt Satan loves to twist this doctrine. So I want you to know where to go in your Bibles. Romans 3, 23. Uh, sorry, 22 through 25. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all, every single person who's ever lived throughout time, save Christ, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. They're made righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. His wrath is appeased by simply us trusting in the, in the work of Christ on the cross. That's what he's saying. Also, just a couple pages later, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul summarizes the doctrine. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Isn't that an amazing statement? This goes way back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Even Abraham was saved by believing God's word, trusting in his word. So the question is, if this is such a prolific doctrine, why is it so difficult for people to believe? Why is it so hard for people to accept this fact? I mean, really, the, the Reformation was all about this doctrine primarily. I mean, it was other doctrines, too, that tied into it. So why is it that people struggle so much to believe that that we can be saved simply by believing that a holy God would forgive us simply by trusting in the sacrifice of His Son. Why is that so hard to believe? It's because it is unbelievable. A holy God who hates sin, can't be in its presence, would send His Son to pay the price of rebels who hated him, who didn't want to give him glory, who only wanted glory for themselves, that such a God would do that and permanently cleanse any who simply believe? That is an unbelievable message, but that's exactly what the Bible declares is true. And therefore it is believable, not because it, it makes logical sense to us sinners, but because God has declared it to be the case. This, this, it's unbelievable unless we understand how great is the love of God. All right? Uh, we are such great sinners. The debt that we have of, of sin that we've committed against this holy God is so great, there's nothing we can do to ever be reconciled with Him. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, 
It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. There's not a single person who's been saved because of any good thing they've done. Their salvation is simply because they believed in the only good man who's ever lived. And that was Jesus Christ who died for their sins. Now, if we've been saved by such amazing grace, how could anybody then go and assert that everybody else or anybody else can be saved, but first they have to do good works first? That's Peter's point. And this brings us to Paul and Barnabas. And the essence of their testimony is that God confirmed his work of grace in their hearts by giving the apostles the ability to perform signs and wonders amongst them. So as, as Paul and Barnabas were going about in the synagogues and, and teaching Gentiles as well, that salvation was through grace alone, God confirmed the, re, the truthfulness of their message by giving them the power to perform signs and wonders. God validated the apostles' teaching that the Gentiles could be saved by grace. And these Gentiles were saved, and God confirmed it through these signs and wonders. And none of these Gentiles whom they were preaching to had been circumcised. So if God wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised and follow all the other Old Testament legal requirements, why did he confirm the apostles' teaching of the gospel through these miraculous signs? So to illustrate, imagine that a young man, every day in class, goes out of his way to sit by the same girl. And when he talks to her, he looks it deeply into her eyes. And then eventually he asks for her phone number. And eventually he asks if, if she's in a relationship. Should she assume that he's interested in her? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> But what would this girl think if some other girl in the class says, well, he can't be interested in you. Because in order for him to be interested in you, you have to first be like me. And she would say, well, all the signs seem to indicate that he is. And that's Paul and Barnabas's point. If God is giving all of these signs and wonders that are clearly only from him, what should we conclude? we should conclude that God has embraced the Gentiles as well as the Jews without them getting circumcised. This brings us to James' argument. Well, the James that's mentioned here, I should point out, it's not uh, James, the son of Zebedee, who is the apostle John's brother. It's a different James. This is actually James, the brother of Christ. The same James that actually wrote the epistle of James. And he has emerged as one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem since... James, the son of Zebedee, was murdered. And, and he begins his counsel by appealing to the book of Amos, you might recall. And this is uh, Amos chapter 9. You might have a cross-reference in your Bible. And so go ahead and flip over there just so you can see this verse in context. It's a little different in the wording. James is kind of summarizing. He might even be quoting the Greek version of it here. But in Amos chapter 9, verse 11... In 12, it says this. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh who does this. Now, the point of this passage here in Amos is that God is eventually going to fulfill Every single promise he's made to, to, to Israel, it's going to come to pass. Not one promise will fail. But in doing so, he's also going to extend those promises to the Gentiles. He's not only going to show grace to the Jews, but he's going to show grace to any of the Gentiles who also trust in Christ, who are called by my name, as it says. Right? All the nations, that, that's the same word for Gentile, are called by my name. And then James' brave statement in verse 18, you might notice, that these things were made long ago, or 
known from of old, it asserts that this was always God's plan. God's plan was always to bring grace to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. So there's no demand that Gentiles will need to become Jews first before they can experience this grace. And he makes this counsel explicitly clear in verses 19 and 20. Look at that. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That, that word trouble is a, is a very strong word that means mess with their minds, essentially. Disturb them. Warp their understanding. We should not trouble them who have turned to God. And he advises zero additional expectations should be put upon the Gentiles. However, he doesn't want to appear like he's advocating antinomianism. That is, extreme uh, license with one's behavior. Just because one's saved doesn't mean they, should, they can go and sin worse than they did before. He says the Gentiles still need to abstain from ungodly behavior. And he, he calls out three specific violations. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and then consuming blood. Well, the first two restrictions are pretty self-explanatory. If you're worshiping Christ, you shouldn't be worshiping idols, and you certainly shouldn't be engaging in sexual immorality. I don't think I need to explain that any further. But the third one might cause some confusion. But it, and it, it demonstrates the ongoing sacred significance of blood. And I think to understand this clearly, we need to turn to Leviticus 17, which makes this doctrine most clear, speaks this doctrine most clearly. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And in verse 17, Moses deals with the issue of blood, the significance of blood. He says this in verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by life. Therefore, I said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And God's point here is the reason Israelites aren't supposed to eat blood is because blood is sacred. Blood represents life. It represents life even today. Like the shedding of blood means a, a, a violence or a life is, is being taken. And so to consume blood is to consume life. It defiles life. And by extension, it, it defiles the cost of our redemption. Remember, the wages of sin is death. When a person sins, the only way they can be reconciled to God is if something else dies in their place. And the only way a human can be permanently reconciled to God is if the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, who was without sin, died in their place. And so to consume blood takes life lightly. And it takes death lightly. And so James wants to make it clear we shouldn't be consuming Blood, when, you, when in, the, the blood should be drained out of the meat before it's eaten. So that we recognize blood's sacred significance even today. And so James's point is, Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. No amount of law-keeping keeping is necessary, but that doesn't mean they can continue to live like unbelievers. They still need to honor God with their life. So after his speech, it appears the whole church comes to agreement. They're unified. And this brings us to the conclusion in verses 22 to 35. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So the church chooses to send a letter to make clear what their position is on this issue. And not just to send Paul and Barnabas back, but actually to send two other leaders from the Jerusalem church to confirm the conclusion. So that it's not just Paul and Barnabas saying, this is what everybody decided, but there's affirmation from church leaders saying, yeah, absolutely, we were unified on this issue, 
Salvation is through grace alone. And this letter begins in verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were out of who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. With this comment, the leaders effectively repudiate the teaching of these Judaizers. They repudiate it. What these men have taught is wrong is what all the church leaders affirm. And they actually affirm these men did come from their churches. right? They've gone out from us. So they own, yes, these people were from our church, but we did not teach them these doctrines, nor did we tell them to go teach these doctrines. They were self-affirmed and proclaiming their own false teaching. It has nothing to do with us. And this massive incident really shows where the root problem lies. These false teachers were members of the churches, but they were not sent out by the churches. In other words, they were self-affirmed. They had a zeal in their heart. They had a passion. God has appointed me to go correct this false teaching of salvation without circumcision. And so I'm going to go and make it clear wherever Paul and Barnabas have been sharing this with the Gentiles, I'm going to correct it. Because I know in my heart what the truth is. And they believed it. But they caused great havoc amongst the churches. And it just shows the importance of Bible teachers needing to be affirmed by churches and church leaders. Right, and it's because, in a sense, in a sense, we're all called to teach what we know. I mean, we should all be teaching our families and friends. But the problem is we don't know what we don't know. And we don't know where we're in error. And often other people can see it, but then there's that awkwardness. Well, do I correct it or not? I'm not a pastor. Should I bring this up? Am I just misunderstanding? I mean, there's a... Every false teacher believes they're right. And that's why we have church leaders that are there to correct error in behavior or error in teaching. Because we don't know what we don't know. There's a reason that it takes three to four years to just get a master's degree to be a pastor at a good seminary. Three to four years of full-time work. It's because there's a lot to know. And there's a lot that you can screw up. And in fact, a lot of what we learn, right, Peter, is a lot of what has been screwed up. It is so easy to go wrong with the Bible. And again, it's not the Bible's fault. It's our own fault. Most false teachers and those who wreak the most havoc in churches, again, they're convinced that they're right. And the damage that they can cause is is incalculable. This is why James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And this is also why the baseline standards for being an elder are so high. If I could summarize 1 Timothy 3, your life needs to be blameless and you need to be able to rightly interpret every aspect of the Bible. a high standard. Now, that high standard, we need, we need to let that sink in because today, anybody with a computer can become a Bible teacher. They can create their own podcast or YouTube channel and propagate their teachings worldwide. And the only qualification they need is somebody to listen to them. In fact, the more people they have listening to them, the more people believe what they're teaching is right. Nobody's checking their theological credentials. In fact, there's no way to check if their life is consistent with their behavior. Right? They might teach one thing and go live another way on their own. 
Because their presence is just electronic. It's not in person. And just, just imagine trusting the medical advice of some self-proclaimed medical practitioner never went to medical school, but they have a podcast, they have a YouTube channel, and they have their own idea about what's going to make you healthy. Trusting them to cure your cancer when they have no medical training. They just surf the internet, or they have a good book, or they just, they're using their intuition. Like the snake oil salesman from the Old West. And we need to recognize the state of one's soul is far more valuable, far more precious than the state of their physical bodies. And yet people will trust the state of their souls to false teachers all the time just because it's easy to access. And what they say just sounds so good. Because it appeals to our flesh. It tickles our ears. In fact, the significance of laying on of hands when a person's affirmed for church offices, the leaders of the church are saying, we so trust this person's life and their teaching that when they live, they are ambassadors of ourselves. They are representatives of us. I identify with this person. As much as you trust me, you can trust them. It's a significant thing. It's a weighty thing. It takes a long time for it to happen, to have that sort of confidence. And so you can trust the leaders in this church. I have absolute confidence in all of our elders and in Peter to teach because they've been vetted. But I can't say that about half the people on the Internet. Most, All the people, except for maybe a handful that I've known. See, although these men in, from the church in Jerusalem had a zeal for God, it wasn't according to knowledge. Their only standard was their own self-assessment. They felt that they were right, and therefore they must have been right. But they were destroying the gospel in their zeal. Now, I, I imagine a person might ask, well, what's the big deal, though? I mean, they meant well. They were trying to help. They're trying to do good. I mean, are we being just a little too harsh on them? Because everybody makes mistakes. Everybody errs. Well, consider that it was in response to these very teachings of these men that were going from Judea throughout Cilicia. It's, it's in response that Paul wrote the book of Galatians. And I'd like you to turn the book of Galatians to Galatians chapter 1. Just for you to understand why this teaching was such a big deal. Paul says in verse 6, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Check this out. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That means damned. So it's a really big deal. Because if you believe a false gospel, you too will be damned. So you better be very certain that whoever you're listening to is trustworthy. That's Paul's point. So these self-appointed teachers were a serious threat to the church. And that's why James feels like we've got to write this letter and send it and have it affirmed by these witnesses. That they bring along Judas and Silas along with Paul and Barnabas. And, and in fact, they even affirm... Paul and Barnabas risked their lives to bring the true gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, what they're saying, you can trust these guys. They're not trying to take advantage of you. They're not trying to use you. They're not just looking for a pat on the back or glory or money. They, they, they've risked their lives. And they will teach you the true gospel. They've proven it through their blood. The church leaders here want to make it abundantly clear what they truly believe regarding the gospel. 
that all that is necessary to be saved from sins is to believe in Christ. That's all a person needs to do. They believe in Christ, His sufficiency and His death, and then they repent. And they seek to follow Him and submit their lives to His Word. And when the the delegated messengers arrive in Antioch, they're well received. In fact, the whole church gathers together. And notice what happens. They, They read the letter, which had the weight of Scripture, since it was the official teaching of the apostles and prophets, again, they, there was no New Testament. So this is about as conclusive as, this is as close to the New Testament as you could get at this point, besides the prophetic utterings of men like Silas and Judas. That they read this letter, which had the weight of Scripture, and notice what it says the people did in response. It says they rejoiced in what they heard, they didn't grumble. They see the grace of God in the teachings of the church leaders and it caused them to rejoice. And and brothers and sisters, what it tells us, when we rightly understand the word of God, we should rejoice. Like that is what should, the word of God should be producing in us. It's joy. We should go out from amongst gathering together with joy because of what God's word says. And towards that end, notice Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Again, it's before the New Testament is written. So the proclamations of these prophets would have held the weight of Scripture until the New Testament was completed. And and hearing the prophets, notice it, it brought both encouragement and strength to the people. That's significant. Hearing their words brought encouragement and strength. And I bring that up because so many Christians today, maybe all of us, it's very easy to feel discouraged. Spiritually discouraged, to feel spiritually weak. Like you're just spinning your tires spiritually. To lose heart, it's very easy to just want to give up, to go be by yourself. To doubt God, it's easy. And nobody chooses to be that way, but it happens because we get tempted and we get deceived. But here we see how spiritual weakness and discouragement is combated. It's through hearing the word of God. Brothers and sisters, that's the means whereby we gain spiritual strength. That's how we're able to withstand in the evil day. It's through hearing the word of God proclaimed. If you want to be spiritually strong, if you want encouragement, and you want to be so encouraged that you can go and encourage others and strengthen their hearts, how do you do it? It's through hearing the word of God preached. And, and notice that after Silas and Judas returned home, Paul and Barnabas remained to do what? They teach and preach the word of the Lord because they want to strengthen and encourage the disciples. And they do that through preaching. This is especially true of preaching that this strengthen happens. Uh, John Calvin believed that when the word of God is preached, God himself is present. He said this, wherever the gospel is preached is if God himself came into the midst of us. And he added this, it's certain that if we come to church, we shall feel, even by a secret power, that God is speaking to our souls, that he is the teacher. He so touches us and so profits us that we are refreshed and nourished by it. God calls us to him as if he had his mouth open and we saw him there in person. You see what he's saying? He's not saying that the preacher, whatever the preacher says is what God says. But he's saying that through explaining the word of God, God speaks to our souls. He clarifies to us what we need to hear and he strengthens us and he builds convictions so that we're not deceived and our mind is renewed. God himself actually works through preaching. My point is, it's something I think it's just so easy to think of preaching and hearing the Bible taught as mundane. Because it just seems so normal. It doesn't seem like there's some great spiritual power necessarily. Because I'm just a man. The Bible's just a book. 
In the same way that Jesus was just an infant in a manger. There's so much about what work, what, what God uses, spiritually speaking, that God loves to use the mundane. God loves to use the plain. It's when we're weak that we're strong. So we need to be reminded of the critical importance of expository preaching and teaching. In fact, that's the reason we offer two services. Not just Sunday morning, but Wednesday evening as well. It's why we offer multiple Sunday school classes and community groups and discipleship groups. It's because this is the biblical method, in other words, what really works to strengthen and encourage believers. And so if you feel spiritually weak, that you need encouragement throughout the week, this is the biblical means to find that strength. Pursue the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. So not only does the Word of God strengthen and encourage our souls, though, but knowing the Bible well will protect us from false teachers. Those who would destroy our faith. Just like these false teachers who went out from Judea and propagated a false doctrine uh, that led to this council in Jerusalem. The way we guard ourselves from being led astray is through the clear teaching of the Word of God. Let's pray. For God's help in that. God, I do pray that you continue to strengthen the, the Bible teachers in this church. Continue to refine us and, and help us to, to every teaching to rightly interpret your word. And if we ever go astray, give us the courage to know how to correct one another. So that, that, that no error would be propagated. Lord, we know that none of us... None of us are brilliant. All of us can err. All of us can be deceived. And so I pray that you would keep our teaching pure. And that you continue to purify our lives. So that every saint in this church would continue to be strengthened and encouraged. And confident in the word. So that what they teach, what they proclaim to others, would be absolutely true. And have power to transform lives. We ask that you would work in such power through your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.